This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Choddy, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Now, Clubhouse, are you on it? Have you got any idea what it is? You're probably going to hear a lot about it this year. It's another sort of social media platform, but you don't post pictures or even text. It's all about chatting. Uh, Some British politicians are already using it, and it's also had an incredible impact in China, where, lo and behold, it's now been banned. So we explore Clubhouse, including my first venture into a Clubhouse room. You can hear that coming up uh, in a moment on the podcast. First, though, it's our columnist panel, and it's Tuesday, so it must be everybody's favourite. Finkelvich, it's Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Danny, why do we put up with it? Why don't we just have our own show? I mean, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. Every you... week we come on and he does this to us. <laughs> oh, it's the Stutler and Waldorf of, uh, uh, of Times Radio. Uh, how, how are you both doing, gents? Were you up late last night watching You Know What? Uh, Chelsea Everton, you mean? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, um, uh, let's talk about... Well, uh, let's not get bogged down too much in the uh, Harry and Meghan uh, and the ins and outs of what they said and, and whether or not Hydrate really is uh, uh, Prince... Uh, not Prince Archie's. Uh, Archie's uh, new favourite word. Um, let's talk about what it says about us. Uh, <laughs> never mind what's the matter with them. What is the matter with us, David, and our obsession with the royals in general and the Harry and Meghan in particular? I thought this was very. I, I mean, one of the reasons I didn't watch it is firstly because of how much it was talked about, which is simply irritating, but also because it's more instructive sometimes to sit back and look at people's reactions to something than it is to have a reaction to something yourself, because actually that's more important, far more important than anything that went on in the interview is what it makes people do and the way it makes them feel. And I had a big discussion about this with a friend of mine uh, who is a psychoanalyst earlier this week. And I said, look, what is going wrong with these people are not particularly important. You know, he's never going to be king or anywhere kind of close to it unless there's a kind of hecatomb of royals that happens in the next few weeks, etc. And they're all kind of rubbed out, you know, uh, 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 he's not going to be king. Uh, This is a, a purely kind of celebrity story in the scheme of things. 
they're nothing like as important as, say, Michael Jackson, because he actually was an artist who affected large numbers of people's lives. They don't really affect anybody's lives at all, except insofar as we're... So what's going on with us? Why do we do this? We, you know, I've listened to endless speculations about Meghan's state of mind this and Harry's state of mind that with people we don't know and who barely know their own states of minds, like most of us don't, let alone we're supposed to understand what their state of mind is. All this kind of stuff about a racist remark when we don't know who said it, we don't know the context in which it was said, we don't even really know if it was said, etc. And we speculate endlessly, endlessly about it. What's it doing for us? Um, and what he, my psychoanalyst said, a friend said, in the stories like this, what happens is that people project their own problems and their own lives into the lives of other people. That's essentially what it's happening. It's a kind of false identification with something which gives us some kind of psychic soothing. I mean, at one level it says, well, at least we're not them. Then another level it says it's kind of a schadenfreude, the schadenfreude of the gossip who finds that the woman next door, etc., who as you always thought was rather posh, is having it off with the milkman. It's that kind of uh, way of talking. Um, but, it, but at a certain point, when uh, we all buy into it, when the BBC makes its top stories, when serious newspaper give it kind of 10 pages, what we do is we become in a way kind of mentally confused. I would actually describe it as a form of a very low level mental illness, mass mental illness. What do you think, Danny? Are you, are you, are you gripped by it? I'm not quite gripped by it, but I don't quite, I don't take David's view. First of all, I think there is constitutional importance to instability in the royal family. So I think that, you know, it, it, uh, there is, there's some sort of serious importance underneath it. But secondly, um, my, my wife's always very concerned that I like to read books about serial killers. I think she always thinks that <laughs> I'm going to be uh, unmasked one moment as a serial killer. Although I, I always tell her that if anybody ever finds me building a patio, I'd be arrested immediately anyway because it was so out of character. But the, uh, the, um, <laughs> the, truth is that the truth is that the reason I like to read these books is because they give you an insight into, into extraordinary, ordinary lives, which normally you can't stop and look at. Right. You, you can't even your friends. It's sometimes quite difficult to stop and look into things like the state of their marriage or, um, the, you know, what they uh, what 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 they their relationships with each other. Uh, and so when people are frank about them, it's very interesting. Um, and David's right in, in one sense. It is about one's own relationships and one's own uh, feelings and one's own family. And you contrast it with that. So that's part of the story. But partly it's just very interesting. I mean, we evolved um, language in order to share information. Gossip is probably our earliest um, evolutionary <laughs> skill. That, that so, um, so I'm not surprised that we... Uh, do this um, but as usually happens in conversations with david and i he immediately reaches for the psychoanalytical and i reach for the evolutionary psychological uh, explanation and they're both totally speculative it has to be said so they, they have that, that they have that kind exactly. of joint joint value and i was thinking in terms of you being a serial kid i was imagining you your wife saying when you're actually up Marty, but he told me he was down at the house of lords um, <laughs> and we believed it. It's always it's always the quiet ones and so on. Um, but the whole point is that these aren't extraordinary people. That's the whole point. They're very ordinary people, just in a sort of rather extraordinary situation. And we can no more divine the insides of their minds than we can divine the insides of anybody else's minds. Let we let uh, we allow ourselves and permit ourselves to do that. And if you're right, Danny, 
that there is some importance here, constitutional importance, which I think in their case I'm not sure I'm willing to accept, but let's say it is, then that speculation actually becomes actively damaging. It's not what they're doing that is damaging. It's our endless speculation and projection into it that becomes damaging in the end. And there's an argument that we need at moments like this to have, to have people talk to us like in the way, actually in the, exactly the way I'm doing. So this makes me a very virtuous person and say, <laughs> take a look, just take a look at yourselves here. You don't know what was said. You don't know. I mean, let's take a very, very small example before we before I hand it back to you, which is the speculation about whether or not the royal family made Meghan depressed. OK, I mean, I didn't see the interview, but there's something. It isn't beyond the wit of humanity to work out that there are all kinds of reasons why somebody in her situation with her history might be inclined towards depression sometimes, as a lot of us actually are. So to to say that we know what the cause of something like that is or to speculate that we do is just stupid. And to and to and to be stupid on a mass scale, I would suggest it's not a great thing. But that there is um, uh, the thing that really strikes me is the, it, because it, to, to the extent that this is basically just a soap opera that you can watch it, you know, it's it's who shot J.R., who, you know, who shot Phil Mitchell or whatever it might be. You know, the speculation about who said what and who didn't. And at a time when there's not a huge amount going on in our lives right now, um, but the, the, it's sort of harmless for us, isn't it? Rather than worrying about our own sort of lives, we can sort of sit back, revel in. Frankly, you know, they have got lots of... Um, uh, privilege in their lives which means that they you know despite harry claiming to have been trapped you know his life is a lot better than than most people's in this country and around the world so it's sort of it's it's fairly harmless speculation gossip and chatting with with no real victim that's how it can feel to lots of people danny yeah, I, it, look, I, obviously there are uh, real people involved in it and you have to have a degree of uh, compassion and, and concern about the individuals that are inv- impacted in all sorts of different ways. It was very hard to watch uh, Meghan Markle's father on television this morning without feeling, you know, very strongly uh, compassionate, both for, actually for him and her in that situation. Um, so I think that is the right reaction. But it is, you know, you, you mention all the soap operas and people are interested in those things, even though they're completely inconsequential. Um, you know, David may question whether this is consequential either, but consequentiality isn't, you know, the, the thing that causes people necessarily to be interested in things. So, you know, I, I think um, we we should try and work out why we, we're interested. We, we are genuinely interested in other people, in narratives, uh, in talking about, about people in front and behind their backs. It's a human universe, or it has been forever, uh, and this is just an example of it. And it's been the history of the royal family, uh, you know, throughout its entire... Uh, existence and it shaped British politics no. the, the thing with, with Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson going in slightly different directions and uh, <laughs> Joe Biden weighing in taking sides in monarchical marital disputes and family differences has been the staple of uh, politics <laughs> in both Britain and the United States for you know more than 200 years and um, this is just the latest iteration of the no. oldest story now, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I really, I think, I really think that it's somebody's job in this, and I think in this instance it's ours to try and get people to, to try and get people to see that there is another side of this, um, because actually it, it, you're not really interested in somebody else's life if you just take certain bits that are said and not said, and out of them construct your own projective fantasy about what it means about them. That's not being interested in somebody else's life. That's David, you and I both that, Hold on, that's, that's you being interested in your version of somebody else's life. And that actually, is, I think that's quite damaging. 
especially if it's done at a mass scale. And that may, funnily enough, though he hasn't got the words to say it, be Harry's actual point right at the beginning about what happened but to you, his mother at blah, 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 blah. You and I both watched that documentary on Amazon, because we talked about it, you know, which dis- in which Deli Alley talked about, uh, the, the Spurs player talked about how he cooked things in a microwave, right? And, they, and I was completely riveted by that, because it was the inside <laughs> view of something that you sometimes are on the outside of. It's just interesting. And if you're interested in life, you're going to be interested in that. So I can't stop myself being interested when someone talks openly about anything, because it's just all human life, you know, and it's why... It's why I read a lot of non-fiction for the same reason. It's to, to because I'm interested in in people's lives and learning, you know, in the door being opened, uh, even if sometimes it's a little bit opaque what I'm seeing even then. But the difference is I you're genuinely it... interested, Danny. I, what I'm saying is I feel that a lot of people who are commenting this are not actually interested in their real lives. They're interested in their version of them. Uh, and and that... I suppose uh, there is a difference, I think, between being interested i mean i'm sort i am interested i'm not somebody who sort of you know i did sit and watch it last night and all of that but i don't feel moved particularly to take sides i think overall you could conclude everybody's behaved not brilliantly at different times because that's how normal people behave all the time yeah. the really striking thing but you're talking about taking sides uh, there's a new gov polling i think it came out yes yeah, yeah yeah yesterday asking from everything you've heard and read about how much sympathy if any do you have for harry and megan uh, 50% of Labour voters have sympathy for them, 10% of Tory voters, 60% of under-25s have sympathy, 13% of under-65s. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a cultural thing, it's an age thing. You know, are you on the side of the old stuffy institution or are you on the side of the millennials it, pushing exactly, their exactly, hydration Matt. water? Exactly, Matt, and that's not interest. I'm sorry, that's not the same as being, as being interested in people's lives. That's the th- taking people's lives or what you think you know about them and making them work to your preconceived ideas. Uh, and that's the problem here. OK, let's move on to something altogether less contentious. Uh, banning the burqa. Uh, <laughs> it's been... Banning the burqa has been proposed in uh, Switzerland. Um, and it's just a feature of what is the correct what, what's the correct liberal position on people doing something that might undermine liberal norms? I suppose that's that's the, that's the question here. Danny, do you want to kick us off on this one? Yeah, well, I think I think proportion always matters a lot. And I, I remember dealing not that long ago with a politician friend of mine who was thinking of making a speech in which he was t- going to call for banning the burqa or stronger. And I, and I said to him. How many people in this country actually wear the burqa? Hardly any, right? So what you're doing is, on the surface of it, you sound as though you're sounding a liberal note. In truth, it's very oppressive to an extremely small number of people. Um, who ha- and, and I know from my own religious community, you know, there are quite a lot of uh, you know, the more orthodox Jewish people who are, who, whose practices I would regard from a liberal perspective as, um, you know, for example, sexist. Um, and yet I can tell, because I know the people involved, that some of the women involved in it um, do so voluntarily and get joy out of it and would regard my intervention on supposedly their side as uh, oppressive itself. So it's complicated, these things. But I think you have to use a sense of proportion. My view is that most of the driving for banning the burqa comes not from a liberal sensibility, uh, even if it uses that rhetoric. It comes from an oppressive desire to make other people behave as you behave. So I think it is essentially an illiberal act 
uh, dressed up in liberalism. But that can, you know, that may be different in societies in which the mix of people are different and the motivations are different. So these things are matters of proportion and judgment. In this particular case, in the Swiss case, it is definitely a populist-driven measure um, uh, uh, to oppress a small number of people who are not causing their neighbours any harm whatsoever uh, and force them to conform to the norm. And I disapprove of that. Yes, yeah, so just to explain that Switzerland had a, had a referendum on it, uh, the official results show that the measure had passed by 51.2% to 48.8%, which is even narrower uh, by uh, referendum standards in the UK. Um, it, it was first put forward by the right, uh, right-wing Swiss People's Party. Uh, the Swiss government had argued against the ban, saying it was not up to the state to dictate what women wear, but yeah, it was narrowly uh, supported. Uh, David, what do you think? What an absolutely bizarre time for a people to decide to ban a face covering. <laughs> I mean, no, no, seriously. I mean, right in the middle of a pandemic, when almost everybody's got a face covering on, they decide to ban a particular face covering. It's so weird. Uh, you know, you just I, you did no. I mean, do the Swiss lack such sense of humour that no one pointed this out to them? Half of them were walking around emburkered themselves uh, because of, because of the pandemic. I completely. I, I'm sorry to be really boring about this. I com- agree with every single word of what Danny has just said. This emerges from a deeply illiberal position. Now, if you could show that people, the women in burkas, I dislike the burka intensely, but if you could show that there was a degree of enforcement to people to wear for women, for women, not people, for women to have to wear face coverings like that for the sake of what they call modesty, then in that case, I would be very swiftly arguing that those women should be protected from that kind of from that form of coercion. Um, But insofar as you can't show that there is that form of coercion, then in that case, it is not our business to go around telling other people how to dress. You know who I always wanted to ban? People who wear T-shirts with a swear word on them. When I had my kids were very small, and there were people, you know, used to walk around with those T-shirts, which I won't mention the words of, etc. My inner illiberal got very quickly kind of engaged with the idea that maybe they shouldn't be allowed to do this in public because my kids might, might say, Daddy, what? And etc. Um, <laughs> but even then, I thought it wasn't my right to do it, although it would have been, you know, 20, 30 years ago, etc. A police person might conceivably have intervened. Danny's right. It's illiberal. Um, it's telling other people what to do from your own kind of point of view, and we don't want any of it. Well, there we are. So I'm glad. I'm glad we finally brought Finkelfitch back together into, into full full agreement. Um, uh, finally, have you either of you? Because we talked about this meteorite that's been found uh, on a drive in the Cotswolds. Either of you found anything interesting in your house during lockdown? Yes, I have. Um, I I, uh, I opened a folder of of old press cuttings of my grandfather's, which I'd had for a long time. And I re-found it again as I was tidying my desk in lockdown. And I discovered the original indictment of the Nuremberg defendant. The, the, it was obviously one of the, you know, about a thousand that was printed at the time, but I thought it was pretty, pretty uh, wow. riveting. That's amazing. Uh, what about you, David? Can you beat that? It's amazing. Exactly the same thing happened to me. <laughs> it's it's an unbelievable no um uh if, if we want to do that i do have the original publication in english of uh the uh transcripts of the of, of the second moscow show trial of 1937 <laughs> this is competitive what is this competitive show Pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> political trials uh memorabilia there's a whole show in that i'm sure there is 
with Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich there. Of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Pick up a copy of the paper. Danny's in the paper on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Or you can, in fact, read them normally the day before in the 5 o'clock edition online. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, join me in the clubhouse. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, let's head into the clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yes, clubhouse. Do you know what it is? Uh, lots of people are talking about it. It is a, it's an app. It's a sort of virtual club that you can uh, go into. It's an invite-only app where you can join a room and listen to people talking about anything and everything and sometimes quite a lot of rubbish. But it is now being used by MPs to speak to their constituents and campaigners on issues they care about. And after it was adopted by lots of people in China to discuss their concerns, particularly about human rights abuses, it's been banned in China already. So what we're going to try and do uh, in this uh, next half hour is just try and uh, talk you through what Clubhouse is, uh, how it might change politics in the future. In a moment, we'll hear from a, I, I set up a room on Clubhouse uh, yesterday afternoon and had a chat with some MPs and brought in some people uh, to, to talk to us as well. So we'll hear from them in a moment. But first, let's do the nuts and bolts of how it really works with the Times Technology Correspondent, Tom Knowles. Hi, Tom. Yeah. Uh, so talk us through the history of it. How old is, is, uh, is Clubhouse? Where did it come about? So Clubhouse has actually been around since March 2020 when it was launched by Rohan Seth, who's a former Google engineer who worked on things like Android and Google Maps, and Paul Davidson, who's also a former Google employee, but also more of a sort of serial entrepreneur. Um, But it's slowly generated this big buzz in Silicon Valley and has exploded in popularity since around January. Um, And, you know, it's had very famous people dropping in to join Clubhouse. You've had people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Lindsay Lohan. And because, as you said at the top of this show, that it's invite only, it's kind of generated this exclusive feel. And, you know, like any good exclusive party, everyone wants to join the thing that only select people are invited to. So that has helped generate this buzz and and grow numbers, essentially. Uh, Do we know how many people are on it? Because like you said at the moment, so I, I got an invite so that I have then eight invites I can pass on. Um, presumably this is all because it's you know it's early days yet and they want to to sort of control who's who is on it but do we know how many people are on it yeah i mean that that's true the, the reason it's invite only was initially because they only had a few employees working for this app and they couldn't handle lots of people joining straight away so they made it invite only but through that it, it made it feel sort of more exclusive which helped generate a buzz but the, the the latest estimated figures the app hasn't released its official figures but estimated figures show that it's been downloaded eight million times which seeing as it only started a year ago is 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 a huge you know jump um around they reckon around 2.6 million of those downloads are believed to be in the us um 
I mean, downloads doesn't always mean users, but Clubhouse's uh, chief executive said in January it was having about 2 million weekly active users, and it's only likely to have grown since then. So, I mean, it, it's going to grow all the time, and, and that's what it's, it's, you know, founders want. They say um, they want our focus now is on opening up Clubhouse to the whole world. Um, at the moment, there's no adverts or fees, so they're not making any money from this. But they said that they're probably considering implementing sort of paid features soon or tickets of subscriptions. So perhaps some rooms you have to pay for is, is probably the plan further down the road. And, and just finally, always with new tech, regulation and the law tends to be quite a long way behind. Are there any, Does this throw up, because it's people speaking and having live conversations which are not then recorded, are there any regulatory issues which it throws up, which is different to, you know, uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever? Yeah, I mean, like all those apps, like lots of previous social media apps, um, Clubhouse is going through this problem of having this viral growth and then finding there's a lot of issues that come with that. So, yes, a, a multitude of problems it's facing. So there are complaints about misinformation. Some users have been promoting conspiracy theories about vaccines and coronavirus on, on the chats that they set up. There's allegations that some journalists have been bullied in the app. And, and there's questions about how easy it is to block people from joining a room where you can then talk about the said person. Germany has said that um, it's possibly breaking GDPR, this app, because what it does is when when you download the app, it, it, it asks to access your address book. And most people just say that without thinking about it. It's A, it stores that data with operators in the US, but it also builds up a profile of people who haven't joined yet, working out how many of their friends are on Clubhouse based on shared phone numbers. So that means even if you've no interest in joining Clubhouse whatsoever, the service may well know your name, mobile number, how many friends you have. Um, and yeah, and then on top of that, the recordings are stored by the owners of the app. The recordings can also be um, on, a, you know, on an apps um, taken by other people than streamed elsewhere. So, yes, there's there's lots of issues that they're having to go through now, basically. Oh, yes, it does seem like a mouthful. I suppose that's, that's what happens with new technology. Uh, really good to speak to you. Tom Knowles there is the Times technology correspondent. Well, to find out more about how it might impact politics and how British politicians are using Clubhouse. I signed up yesterday and I hosted a room. It's basically, imagine a village hall with some chairs for the audience and on the stage there's me and I can bring people up onto the stage. Uh, so I had uh, a Labour MP, Stephen Doughty, uh, Tory MP, Esther McVeigh. They're both uh, keen users of it. And uh, we, I brought some people up, just people, they raised their virtual hand and brought them up on the stage. They got to answer some questions as well. Whole mix of people, about 50 odd people in the room by the end. So uh, let Let's uh, take a listen. This is what happened when I ventured in to Clubhouse. OK, so here we go. So we go into the Clubhouse. We join the room. Here we are. So we're now in the room. I'm in the room. Uh, Stevens. Oh, look, uh, lots of people here. This is this is very exciting. Um, <laughs> OK, so... Uh, so we've got Stephen Doughty here, Labour MP, Labour frontbenchers. Hi, Stephen. Hi. And uh, Esther McVeigh, former cabinet minister, here as well. Hi, Esther. Hello there, Matt. And we've got, blimey, look at all these people. This is, I mean, this is, so, okay, um, I'm a total novice on this. I've only dipped my toe into the clubhouse uh, this week. <laughs> um, Esther, you've been on it a while. You've been doing some things on it. Talk us through what you think clubhouse is all about. What was the appeal of, of, of trying out this new app? Okay, well, I was invited on by a friend who said, come into this space, it's um, 
much more conducive to conversation, obviously. You can't be anonymous. It's not 140 digits boot and run. It really is a space that you can have a frank and fair conversation. It's much politer um, and it's much more considered. And I think that uh, bullying and intimidation we've seen on other spaces isn't really on this one and i think you'll see by even the people who are filling up the room people have got something to add to the conversation and you can just like you've done matt set up a room have an impromptu conversation whatever that could be but it's just a i feel a much more considered open and considerate space on social media do you think that just because it's new quite a lot of sort of what you know i remember a time when facebook was quite nice and that went a bit horrible and then twitter came along and that was quite nice uh, and then that went a bit horrible. And then, you know, it was Instagram and that was quite nice. And then that would be like, you know, is it is it just the, the sort of newer, early adopters um, tend to be slightly more polite and then it gets taken over by people hiding behind anonymous things? Or, or do you think it is because people are speaking in their own voice and, you know, you can hear people. So you're not just sort of shouting at uh, an image. It's, it's It does feel more personal, doesn't it? We're just chatting. You know, you're definitely right on that, that, you know, when, when a new social platform starts, it probably is, it is a friendlier, more open, inviting space. But I do think uh, that you can't be anonymous on this space. I do think that there are rules so that if you are rude, bigoted, racist, you know, whatever it is that is non-conducive with this space, you can be removed. Uh, so I think that does uh, play into uh, a politer environment. And I have to say, a much-needed environment. Uh, Stephen Doughty, Labour MP, Labour Fund Venture. What have you been doing using Club, Clubhouse for? Because I've heard all sorts from, you know, discussing how to tackle climate change to people pretending to make the noise of squealing cats. Which which sort of rooms are the ones that you favour? <laughs> um, well, uh, I, have, I have been in a few with music and, um, and comedy, but um, thankfully no squealing, squealing cats, although my cat is wandering around right next to me at the moment, so you might hear him yowing in a moment. Um, but um, no, actually one of the first rooms I went into, and uh, very appropriately given we're on uh, International Women's Day, um, and, and celebrating that was actually a room led by Esther, and um, I think also Den Kelly Holmes was in that. Den Kelly was talking about her transition from being an Olympian to uh, in business and um, an entrepreneur, which was absolutely fascinating. Um, I took part in Esther's one where we were talking about uh, mental health and public life and uh, public speaking, which again was a very frank and candid and really constructive conversation. And then the other two areas um, I've been involved in lots of conversations on um, that I found very positive have been uh, with members of the LGBT plus community um uh, i'm an openly gay mp um uh, there's been absolutely brilliant um safe space conversations with um lgbt plus activists and allies from all over the world and i think one of the really amazing things is that it's brought together people at the moment still predominantly from the us and the uk and europe but actually i've been speaking to lgbt plus activists from across africa from across asia um and listening to their insights which is particularly relevant for me um in my role as a shadow um foreign office minister and, and looking at those issues and that's been absolutely brilliant i know there has been some negative stuff on here as well and i think like any of these platforms you know there are people who are going to trial are going to um, abuse others and so on but because it's quite self-regulating and well-moderated rooms can chuck those people off i don't i don't know about this so if if someone and what well, we've got about 25 odd people in, in the do yeah. put your hand up if you want to talk we can do that in a second but if someone you know if i let someone in and they start sh- saying yeah. oh i blooming hate times radio i can huff them out can i 
<laughs> well, you, you, you can, but I mean, I mean, I think it's broadly for moderators to set the kind of the tone and the um, uh, the kind of the the rules for the for the room. And what I found actually, some of the best moderators do is that they invite people up um, if they're just asking a question, and then they say, "I'm going to respectfully pop you back in the audience now, uh, just to let other people speak." Well, I won't, I won't kick you out. Don't worry, Stephen. So I'll tell you what. Does anyone else who's in the room want to ask a question? If you, I think you put your hand. Oh, hang on. Who's this? Michael. Hello. Hi. Um, thanks for having me up. Um, I'm relatively new as well. Um, I did a, did a panel last week with um, on which Stephen was uh, a panellist. And we had David Collins and uh, who else we have? Daisy Cooper and we had Stuart McDonald, all MPs. But my challenge to arrange it, um, from my sort of estimations, there seems to be about four to one male to female MPs on Clubhouse at the moment. Um, I'm trying to get, and actually there seems to be a disproportionate number of, of men versus women on, on at the moment as well, and that appears to be a big problem, and Daisy Cooper made the excellent point that Clubhouse as a name and sort of as a concept is something very kind of um, <laughs> uh, male and, um, well, I suppose pretty much discriminatory, so um, it's, I don't think it's sort of by its nature attractive to... It, it doesn't um, scream inclusivity, that's what you're yes, saying. What yes, do you think about that, true. Esther? How can we do more to get m- more women more women MPs on, onto Clubhouse? Well, I didn't find it ex- excluded me at all, the name whatsoever. I was just interested in what the platform was about, and I saw it more as a club. I mean, they are rooms, people can come in, that's what it's about. You've got a stage, you've got an audience, you've got, like, the VIP the section which follows the speakers so i think it's just by sending an invite and each of us has an invite and then you might get an extra five invites or however many so i guess it's up to you michael stephen matt myself to make sure that we invite (laughs) more women and not less men it's not like the only invitation you are allowed to send is to a bloke (laughs) you can send them to whoever you want so i'd say shout back out to you start inviting um, more women but i think i was interested in when you talk about politics and why we're here i actually listen a lot because i'm wondering who are the influencers now if you've got marcus rashford making uh, decisions and having a say you know jamie oliver joe wicks where are those influencers coming from how are you listening to what is happening on the ground does government move at a pace that is quick enough in the 21st century so that's why i was here just wanting to listen to those concerns of people you know uh, how they think they could solve them are we using it social media network enough in government to answer problems rapidly and that's why i was here to listen to sort of the voice of everybody else <laughs> and their expertise I, I, sorry i actually first heard about it from my constituent but actually um a number of uh, constituents of mine have been having community discussions on it um about uh, issues to do with um racial inequality in the community actually and so it was first from them that i heard about it which is which is quite a good good Good, good sign in that you know it, it, it's not just a preserve of the, the influencers and the MPs and that's the, really the interesting yeah so so I think there is there is that going and so how could this work with politics how, how could you use it in politics do you think what, what I've seen and Stephen's right he was talking about his local community who are on here there's also a group I think it's every Tuesday at midday which is talking about the high street how are we going to uh, revive it how are we going to make it so it, it, it's a place for the community and businesses can thrive so you've got people now talking about issues that matter to them I'll tell you what let me bring in somebody else uh, let's bring in uh, Charlotte Charlotte hi Hiya. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be on stage. That is the customary thing you say on Clubhouse. Well, it's nice to have you on stage. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but my only 
thoughts would be um, surely it's got to be a way to get more instant feedback from people. If you look at something like the way government ga- gathers sort of opinions from society at the minute, scope a consultation, launch a consultation, ask for feedback on a consultation, put a response together. You just think, surely things like this now have got to try and speed up the mechanisms of politics a little bit. This is such a much speedier way of getting an instant feeling about what members of society want to do on an issue. I'm really just to know, uh, Stephen and Esther, would you both encourage your respective leaders, Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, to get on here and hear direct from, from normal people, unfiltered in the way that they probably don't very often? I mean, I, 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 I certainly encourage you know leaders to get on here. And, um, you know, and I know a number of my front bench colleagues have already been on here having having discussions. Um, and, you know, and a number of Esther's colleagues, I think it's about, you know, having all of these things as a portfolio. I mean, I, I do Facebook Lives regularly with my constituents. Um, and then I also regularly uh, do um, Instagram Lives. I do sort of online chats. I respond as myself on different platforms. I still, you know, when we were allowed, do community meetings. Well, I just want to ask you one more question, Stephen. Ha- you talked about all the things you are on. Are you on TikTok? Because you've all, haven't all Labour MPs been told to go on TikTok because there are spoof <laughs> Labour MP TikTok accounts? I, I am on TikTok. I mean, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of TikTok so far. Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of, you know, pretty, pretty just banal stuff on there um, but there is some good stuff and I, i'm not so sure i'm sort of finding out that platform myself but i have had my i've had multiple spoof instagram accounts for example put up in my name and other things and that is one of the perils is that people, <laughs> people spoofing you or or actually uh, you know sometimes it's just for a joke but sometimes it's actually more sinister and we know that there are um, other governments around the world of course who would like to in you know uh, impersonate or um, stir up things using social media accounts particularly of politicians and media figures so we've all got to sort of have our wits about us when we're engaging on these forums what about you esther should boris johnson get onto clubhouse oh absolutely i think you've got to make politics relevant I believe, how do you bring politics to the people? How do you know that you're listening to them and not being taken away, as we've called it before, about the Westminster bubble, or you talk about uh, the exclusivity of politics? I think we're in an age now where uh, you have to make sure more than ever before that you are connecting with your voter. Right, I'm going to to try out my juices again. So I'm going to put Charlotte back in the audience just because I'm enjoying that power. Well, I'll be honest, there's, there's far more people in this room than I was expecting. Right, Rachel, you've been sitting very uh, politely on the stage. Uh, let's bring you in. Rachel, what do you want to say? Uh, thank you for letting me speak. I just had kind of three points about how I'm finding Clubhouse in the political world. I think, A, it's a lot more accessible. Being able to kind of speak in a room like this is uh, a lot easier than trying to have a conversation on Twitter. And like Stephen says, it's a lot more informal and you can have those chats with senior um, MPs, journalists. And I think that's really useful. Uh, Esther, it seems that you're the, you seem to be the linchpin. Absolutely everybody seems to have been in one of your rooms or, or, or you've brought them to Clubhouse or they've enjoyed you being on Clubhouse. Is this, is this you building your, your leadership bid from, from the, the <laughs> room by room? I did a leadership bid before, but that was just to make sure that people knew about the blue-collar conservative voice. No, this is genuinely just because I'm intrigued on where we're now going to hear what it is people want. I'm interested in the influencers. How do we get policy quicker uh, of the moment and just how politics will change? And I think it is going to change significantly. Esther, Stephen, thank you very much. I'm sorry not to be able to bring um, everyone in who put their hands up, but do you know what? I'm amazed by how many people are even in the room. It turns out 
um, this is this sort of works. And I, I'm conscious that other people have told me they've they've dipped into a room which has then gone on for. 12 hours or it something. It's addictive. If there was one thing I had to say, um, be careful. It is hugely addictive. And how do I end this? Because normally, if we were in a meeting, I would say, oh, thank you all for coming. There'd be a, a ripple of applause and then some awkward sort of packing away of chairs. How, how do we end a, how do we end a room? You'd say, you'd say oh, uh, thank you for joining us. There's, there's the end of this room, and you go to the three little dots in the top corner, you'll be able to see Matt. There we are. There's a little option on there that says end room. End room. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Stephen. Esther's already gone because she's so in demand uh, building her empire on uh, Clubhouse. Uh, thank you all for joining. And I'm now going to end room. So that's what happened when I tried going on the Clubhouse app. The It's just audio. It's just people chatting in rooms and people can come up and say their piece and then go back into the audience. But it's not all larking about with MPs and meditation sessions and gurus telling you how to expand your network. There's a serious side to it too. Earlier this year, people in China were using the Clubhouse app to have conversations they'd never never normally have in public in China to discuss political taboos, things like human rights abuses by the government, uh, in particular the detention of Uyghur Muslims. Uh, one of those people who managed to listen into some of those conversations was Jay Young Fan, who's a staff writer from The New Yorker and joins me now. Hi, th- thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Yes, hi. Um, thanks so much for having me. So yes, I tried out Clubhouse a few weeks ago and I was lucky enough to be trying it at a time right before China had banned Clubhouse. So that meant that the first few rooms I joined were all Chinese language. And what made the experience very unique was that there were conversations taking place in these rooms about subjects that are very politically sensitive in China and that I had not heard on any other um, platforms, partly because they're not audio, and um, and that's also what makes um, Clubhouse very new, and I think particularly suited for um, these sensitive conversations, um, and they disappear, um, these conversations disappear after the chat has concluded. So it was um, really revelatory to me, and also um, introduced me to a kind of conversation that I had never heard before, that is, before China banned to come uh, banned the app altogether uh, and in particular people in china talking about the detention of uyghur muslims which has been such a massive uh, story outside china but not but rarely discussed because you know the fear that if they're seen to criticize what's going on in china um uh, the impact that might have on someone so why do you think people are willing to discuss it what sorts of things were they saying when you were, when you were listening into these rooms why are they more willing to um discuss it i think that on an app like twitter or uh, facebook both of which are um, uh, also banned uh, in China, but um, on platforms that are based um, on, you know, written message boards, as it were, people are afraid to leave a trace of themselves, even if they're on there under, uh, you know, false um, pseudonyms. But something about hearing another person's voice, about ha- having an audio exchange in real time, is very humanizing. Um, and rather than descending into name calling and into defensiveness right away, there's this 
sense that you are talking to another person, another flesh and blood person whose opinions are probably formed out of a really complicated um, array of emotions. And that, um, and uh, you could, I at least could um, hear that in the rooms that I was a part of. Uh, and in terms of, because obviously getting sort of evidence out about what's happening to the, the Uyghurs, um, what did, is really difficult. And, you know, it's, did you hear anything in those rooms that shocked you or, or added to your understanding of, of what's going on? In these rooms where I think the maximum number is 5,000 attendees, you have people um, having sharing um, sometimes very conflicted views about um, what is going on in Xinjiang province. And I should note that, you know, this is um, a really restive region of China where uh, the Chinese government has been building concentration camps that they have called um, re-education camps. And there's been a lot of um, repression of their of the, of the practice of their religion and um, this very purposeful, what's called kind of Chinesefication um, of, the, of, the of the region. I mean, these are people who do not share a language um, and culture uh, and religion with the uh, ethnic uh, majority, uh, the Hans. So, you know, what you hear often um, from some um, of the Chinese participants is that, well, it's not as bad as, you know, you um, hear from, uh, from Western uh, media reports that um, it is uh, really a way of undermining China, um, what you hear from um, Western media, and they are just looking for any attempts to, you know, give China a bad name. But then, you know, you get to really, at least I did, bear witness to conversations in which people are trying to understand what the truth is and you know, what is going on um, and why there is so little access to, to the information and explore um, their own you no know, discrimination against minority, their fear of minority, um, their um, Han chauvinism, um, which uh, unfortunately is, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of the conversation within China. And that sort of conversation in which people are open about their defensiveness, their vulnerability is something that's very rare. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, what was it moving and refreshing about these conversations. You heard in real time people talking about um, why it is that they find it really difficult to believe that the Chinese government would be doing something like this, how they have been blind to their own privilege um, as a Han uh, majority. And um, I guess what was, you know, the most unexpected was to me was the way that people were connecting their experiences in China to what is going on in the U.S., in the U.K., the minority versus majority um, dynamics, um, the, the, you know, the kind of prejudice that occurs, um, you know, almost subconsciously um, or sometimes unconsciously and the kind of impact that has on a society. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.